Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. A state attorney general investigation into Aurora's police and paramedics found a pattern of violations. We'll take a closer look on today's show. Plus, as Colorado works to reduce pollution from emissions, we learn more about the carbon economy and why Governor Polis has no plans to implement a cap-and-trade system as part of the state's climate goals. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. Colorado Attorney General Phil Weiser has issued a scathing investigation of Aurora's police and paramedics. The investigation identifies a pattern of violations of people's rights, use of excessive force, and racial bias. Together with the other information we reviewed, we concluded that Aurora police engaged in racially biased policing, treating people of color and Black individuals in particular differently from their white counterparts. KUNC's Michael Deoana joins me now to talk about the findings, which were released on Wednesday, the many reactions that he's been pursuing, as well as the overarching question of what it all means. Michael, hello. Hello. So this was a very comprehensive investigation, according to Weiser. Tell us what specifically he was looking into. Yeah, this report scoured everything. Body camera reviews, interviews with officers, reports, data. It's quite exhaustive. In all, it's 112 pages with another 100 or so pages of technical appendix. Uh, But what caught my eye were the individual stories in it, Uh, like one in August of last year when officers held a black family at gunpoint and ordered them to lay face down on hot pavement, handcuffing them all on suspected car theft. Yeah, I vividly remember that making the news. Yeah, the report highlighted what was happening behind the scenes and all that. It found that the family in the car uh, had a license plate with the same numbers as a plate from a stolen vehicle, but from the wrong state and maybe even the wrong kind of vehicle, which might have been a motorcycle. In another incident, an Indian American doctor who was in his car in March of 2020 honked at a police cruiser that was blocking the building that he owned. An officer drew his gun on the doctor and started questioning him as if he were a criminal suspect. There are many examples like this in the report. Hmm. All right. Well, tell us what the main findings are. Yeah, it found a consistent pattern of illegal behavior by police and a bias in their actions that disproportionately affects people of color. Police used force against people of color almost 2.5 times more than white people. Nearly half the people who police used force against were black, even though black residents are 15 percent of Aurora's population. We found that Aurora police has repeatedly engaged in unlawful, and unconstitutional uses of force, regularly applying greater force than reasonably warranted by the situation. We observed officers using force to take people to the ground without first giving them adequate time to respond to officer commands. 
People of color were also more likely to be stopped in the first place and more likely to be arrested. Also, people in need of help, people with mental issues, couldn't rely on officers. We observed officers immediately escalating situations and circumstances in which the subject was in obvious mental health distress, but did not present an imminent risk of harm to themselves or others. All right, so what does all of this mean? What is going to happen? There's going to be what's called a consent decree from the state. That's a legal agreement in which the state will prescribe solutions and then enact them. Weiser hasn't provided the details for the decree yet. That's coming soon. But he indicated the need for an independent monitor, tracking and rigorous accountability. And how are police officials reacting to this? In a statement, Aurora Police Chief Vanessa Wilson acknowledged that there are, quote, changes to be made and said the decree will serve as another resource in our path forward. That's a quote. But it remains to be seen exactly how that's all going to play out. Right. Now, I want to get to a few other reactions to the investigation. But before we do that, there was something else in the report. Aurora Fire Rescue Paramedics' use of ketamine to sedate people. Uh, That is something you and Ray Solomon investigated in a series of stories in the last year. Exactly. You know, we found uh, paramedics used ketamine more than 900 times in a two and a half year period. That's data for agencies around the state, including Aurora. We found cases where people in incidents with police were sedated, even though they were already handcuffed. They were said to have a form of extreme agitation called excited delirium. But cases Cases we looked at, uh, the people said that they they didn't have that, and even some experts agreed. Uh, the the reason we looked into that issue was Elijah McLean, a black massage therapist who was given an excessively high dose of ketamine the night police brought him to the ground. A coroner's report was inconclusive about whether that was the cause of his death, but. In the report, there's a pattern among paramedics. In 40% of cases, they gave doses that exceeded the protocol. And in 60% of cases, paramedics failed to follow any protocols. And we're, of course, talking about paramedics with Aurora Fire Rescue here. How did officials there react to this? Aurora Fire Rescue Chief Fernando Gray said paramedics are no longer able to use the drug. You know, that's not news. We've reported that. But uh, but what is news is that he said the agency has no plans to reintroduce ketamine and that the department has taken steps to improve care for patients. His statement, though, didn't specify what exactly those steps were. And, you know, I should add earlier this year, a bill that would strictly limit paramedics' use of ketamine was signed into law by Governor Jared Polis. When that happened, the state's public health department suspended ketamine waivers across the state, meaning that paramedics can't sedate people in this way pending a review of that law. Right. Well, I know you spoke with some other stakeholders following the release of the findings by the attorney general. What are some of the reactions you've been getting? Yeah, Representative Leslie Herod said the report and its prescription for change shows the sweeping power of bipartisan legislation that she helped pass last year amid the Black Lives Matter protests. Uh, Senate Bill 217, along with other law like the ketamine bill I just mentioned, is casting a spotlight on community issues that have simmered for a long, long time, occasionally boiling over into things like lawsuits and complaints, but without real change. 
What it means is that there has been harm that has been, been done to real people in our communities, some that will never be able to speak up about what happened to them. But hopefully this will prove to some people and vindicate to others uh, that what they believe happened to them was real, uh, that what they believe that they are facing when it comes to uh, racial discrimination in their community is real, and that the state of Colorado will support them and will protect them against abusive practices moving forward. Herod said she will be reaching out to Weiser's office to partner with the consent decree process. Another reaction uh, comes from Elijah McLean's mom, Shanine McLean. I met with her yesterday at her attorney's office, and I asked her what she thought of Weiser's report. You know, the fact that it's been going on for so long in Aurora, Colorado, and it would take my son's murder to highlight it all is is terrible. You know, there's a lot of people that are working in Colorado um, above the police officers that are allowing those police officers to be killer cops with their accomplices, the firefighters and paramedics. And it's just, it's an uncomfortable feeling knowing that they've been in, in practice for so long, you know, with, with other people's lives in their hands. I should add here that three of the police officers and two of the paramedics involved in Elijah McLean's case were charged with manslaughter and negligent homicide two weeks ago. Shanine McLean is also looking to the consent decree process, uh, but also wants to see a radical shift in police and paramedic culture, like you know, officers who grew up in the area and agencies with staff from the front lines to the top chiefs, that's as diverse as the area. She's very skeptical uh, to use a word from Weiser's report that real change will come, but she hopes in the name of her son that it will. Justice is far away because there's nobody that can bring back my son. I don't think I'll ever have justice for what happened, but moving forward, I know that they'll be um, they'll be a part of my life where I can see that this isn't happening to other people. Michael Deuena is KUNC's investigative reporter. Thank you very much. You're welcome. In just a moment, we'll delve into the misunderstood world of the carbon economy and why Colorado's governor isn't in favor of a system allowing companies to buy and sell carbon pollution credits, otherwise known as cap and trade. Before we get to that, we'd love your help with an upcoming conversation about Hispanic and Latinx participation in the outdoors. Colorado's Latino population is expected to increase significantly over the next 20 years. And while participation in the outdoors is booming, that's not necessarily the case among all racial and ethnic communities. Next week, we'll be speaking with some who are working to overcome barriers and help empower all Coloradans to enjoy the outdoors. We want to hear from you, and especially our Latinx and Hispanic listeners. What questions do you have about the outdoors? Do you like to go out in nature? Why? And if not, is there something that holds you back? And is there anything you would change about outdoors culture in Colorado? You can leave us a voicemail with your thoughts at 970-703-4081 or send us an email at coloradoedition at kunc.org. We'll try to answer some of your questions in an upcoming show. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Flashback to 2018. So you would support 
a making Colorado the first state in the nation with its own carbon tax. That was Nine News' Kyle Clark posing a question to then-gubernatorial candidate Jared Polis during a live debate in the weeks leading up to the November election. Here is how Polis responded to that question. Yes, if you're talking about would I rather tax polluters than individual hardworking families earning 50000 or 100000 or 200000 uh, of course. Well, we all know now that Polis won the 2018 election. And while a state carbon tax has not transpired, in the time since he took office, Colorado adopted a set of ambitious goals for reducing carbon pollution. This year, the state legislature passed a number of bills intended to position the state to achieve those emissions goals. One of those bills was HB 1266, the Environmental Justice Bill. When Governor Polis signed that bill, he simultaneously signed an executive order prohibiting a statewide cap-and-trade policy, which is another common way of attaching a price tag to carbon emissions. Governor Polis has a long-standing history of opposing environmental groups that support cap-and-trade. And he recently reiterated his interest in taxing carbon emissions, even floating the idea of eliminating state income taxes in favor of pollution taxes. All of this got us curious about the world of economic carbon policy and what it might mean for Colorado. So we're turning to Lauren Gifford, a Louisville-based geographer. Lauren is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Arizona and adjunct faculty at Metropolitan State University. She's been studying global climate policy for 15 years, and she's here now to share some of that knowledge with us. Lauren, welcome to Colorado Edition. Thanks a lot. I am really curious about this whole idea of carbon markets. It's a hot topic in very specific circles, circles that I do not move in. So I'm wondering if we could just start with a definition. What are carbon markets? Why do we have them? Sure. So I've been asking this question since about 2007 when we started talking about them at a global scale, and uh, I think it's fascinating. So a carbon market is essentially um, polluting entities, whether they are countries or companies, depending on the, the size and, and space of the market, those markets um, or those entities, uh, their pollution, they're uh, given pollution allowances and then a cap. So if they pollute over and above those allowances, they need to purchase them from either someone who polluted below or um, they can invest in carbon offsets, which exist outside the cap. So again, so it's essentially um, uh, a sale of allowances of carbon, uh, sales of permits that allow pollution. And so then are there other ways of putting a cost on carbon emissions? There are so many ways to put a price on carbon. So a carbon market is just one way of pricing carbon. A carbon tax um, is another very common way. And these are very, very different beasts. So I know to a lot of people, they say, how can Polis be pro-carbon tax if he's anti-cap and trade, you know, an anti-carbon market? Um, to, to folks, the wonky folks who are in it, that makes a lot of sense, actually. Um, a carbon tax is taxing the actual emissions, where a carbon market is giving an allowances. It's, it's always these elaborate bureaucracies that are involved in it. Some folks think that they're like shell games to make climate action legible um, in policy, uh, where a carbon tax is much more straightforward. So a carbon tax is just what it sounds like. And it, it sounds like the cap and trade is almost like the ability to pollute is sort of a good that can be bought, sold, or traded. Right. I mean, in all, in all of these ways, uh, carbon dioxide emissions become a commodity. Um, but with uh, a carbon market, there's an allowed 
the cap in cap and trade is an allowed cap in pollution, right? So you can pollute up into a certain point. Um, and companies then they, they often retrofit or change how they do business um, to, to stay below that cap trade, uh, which is the, you know, with other companies or polluters, which is that trade part, and then uh, invest in offsets, which is outside of the cap. Okay. And as we mentioned, Governor Polis has been consistently opposed to cap and trade policy here in Colorado. Some environmental groups do support it. Just in a nutshell, what are the arguments for and against cap and trade? Well, that's a great question, Erin. I think um, Polis has said, and I, you know, I'm not in the state house, so I don't know what's going on on the ground there, but I know that Polis has said uh, he opposes cap and trade for environmental justice reasons because cap and trade does allow pollution in frontline communities because um, companies or, or industries that are polluting areas, um, you know, like in Globeville, for example, can continue business as usual uh, as long as they purchase carbon credits. Um, it's not actually lowering climate change. The other thing is we've had carbon markets around the world now for 10 to 15 years, the European emissions trading assistant, uh, European emissions trading system, California has uh, a cap and trade system and they haven't really worked. They don't work to lower climate change or to lower carbon emissions and to address climate change. So we know that they don't work. And I know that part of that is, is why Polis wouldn't support it. There's the environmental justice issues um, and, and, there, it's incredibly costly to set up a carbon market. Um, it's very intense bureaucracy. Um, there's a lot of uh, contractors and people that go into monitoring, reporting, verifying, accounting for carbon. Um, and it's a whole industry and it probably wouldn't be worth it to just do it in a state like Colorado. Well, I am also curious about Governor Polis's suggested approach of getting rid of the state income tax in favor of a pollution tax. I don't know how serious he was when he said that, but I am wondering how feasible this is. Has anyone kind of gamed that out to see how it might impact businesses here in Colorado? You know, we haven't seen it happen um, at a large scale in other places. And, and I don't so I don't think I can really speak to how it would impact businesses, um, but it would certainly impact certain sectors the oil and gas industry, um, concrete, things like that, um, certain sectors that pollute, that are heavily reliant on fossil fuels or are part of the extraction and combustion of fossil fuels. We asked some listeners to weigh in with questions that they might have about this topic. Ron in Fort Collins wanted to ask you about how local economies can prepare for moving away from carbon-based energy. And also, how might such a move impact Coloradans financially? The pocketbook. That's a great question. Uh, so I think the first thing, how can we prepare to move away? You know, we, we see Excel uh, incentivizing um, the shift to renewables and just, you know, we need to put money and interest and, and um, brains and skills that we already have here in Colorado into renewables. The other thing is, this shift, it, you know, we, we talk about this concept of a just transition, transitioning to a renewable energy system that uh, doesn't harm communities, that, in, that is more inclusive, where there's access to, um, to, to clean energy, clean air to, for all Coloradans. Um, and this means we need to support these communities that are transitioning away from a dependency on the fossil fuel economy. So there was news out last week in Weld County um, about 
the tax base just dropping very rapidly because um, because of a loss of money from the oil and gas sector. And then that impacts um, it, it impacts social services, roads, schools, on all these other ways. So communities that are very focused on oil, gas, and coal, like Weld County, like the Yampa River Valley, we need to focus on supporting these communities from in spaces that don't necessarily seem like environmental issues, right? Like, is there funding for social services? Is there funding for public schools? Is there funding for roads and infrastructures? Because these communities are gonna take a tax hit. So the just transition uh, is very broad, very wide, um, and it requires, um, I'm a geographer, I like to think about things spatially, and it's a spatial problem, right? We're moving, uh, if we move to solar and, and wind, these are not in the same spaces where oil, gas, and, and, and coal extraction are happening. So we need to be able to meet, meet these communities where they are, meet their needs, help them financially, support them, support the people who live there um, with respect and kindness and honor for the Colorado they have, they have helped bring us to now and, and where we're going with Colorado. We're talking with Lauren Gifford, who studies global climate policy with the perspective of a geographer. Lauren, where do carbon markets fit into this broader landscape of emissions reduction strategies? Are there better policies out there that local governments can adopt when it comes to reducing emissions? Absolutely. So carbon markets, uh, I, I always like to quote an editorial that some colleagues of mine, Michael Dorsey and Patrick Bond wrote years ago, and the headline was carbon markets don't work. Because I still I still agree with that. You know, 10 years later, I still think that it's an important idea. So um, carbon markets also need to happen at scale, right? Like the European Union has a carbon market. California, which is like the fifth largest economy in the world, has a carbon market. Small communities uh, and, and um, municipalities are not going to have a carbon market that works or does anything. Uh, so, you know, municipalities just need to invest in renewables. They need to invest in their own communities. Um, there are concepts from the Green New Deal, which we don't even have to call it a Green New Deal, but uh, investing in job training, investing in uh, infrastructure that's more sustainable, um, that's more kind and just. Uh, these are things that will help um, our, our communities stay more viable. And we don't have to engage in these bureaucratically intense markets uh, like, you know, carbon markets. Yeah. And I think that makes sense when you look at a small geographic location or a municipality. I mean, emissions travel. So there's really no point in attacking it at a super, you know, granular level. Absolutely. Right. So the atmosphere, it's, it's, it's the global commons. We all share it. Um, and we, as we've noticed, when we, when we try to look, you know, if you're in the front range and you're looking at the mountains, we can, we see that we are getting air pollution from California, from Oregon, right. From these fires. Uh, these things travel again. It's an interesting thing to think about spatially. We don't need to like, or I mean, if we manage climate change, say in the front range, through a market-based mechanism, it's not just impacting the front range, it's, a, it's impacting uh, the globe. So I think we just need to think about who's emitting uh, carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, methane into the atmosphere, and how can we curb that? Mm -hmm. 
And so what about the carbon tax or the pollution tax? Does that does data show that attaching a cost to carbon can bring down emissions in practice? A carbon tax can be very effective, but it's hard to get buy-in. It's hard to, you know, it's hard to in- introduce a new tax on anything. So um, we haven't seen widespread carbon taxes because the industries that have a lot of power and a lot of lobbying power don't want them. So I would like to see a carbon tax. I would like to see widespread carbon taxes. It's a hard thing to enact. Right. How would you like to see local governments here in Colorado approach this? Well, I think the first thing is to avoid greenwashing. Um, you know, we talk about net zero. Net zero isn't zero. Net zero is a balanced carbon budget. Um, So I I just actually, I want to see real emissions. I want to see moving away from dependencies on fossil fuels. Uh, I want to see investment in clean renewables uh, like solar and wind. Um, And I want to see investments in communities. I want uh, I want to make it easy to put solar panels on your house. I want to make it easy to have an electric car that's affordable. Um, I want communities to actually feel it in their wallet that we're using renewables because renewables are affordable right now. Lauren Gifford is a geographer who studies climate policy and carbon markets. Lauren, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Erin. That's our show for today. Coming up tomorrow, jobs in Colorado are changing, and now an increasing number require a college degree or credential. The Colorado Dream Career Education is a special series from KUNC's Stephanie Daniel. It examines how a small Metro Denver school district is playing a greater role in training tomorrow's workforce. Join KUNC for the Colorado Dream this Friday at 2.30 and 6.30. You can also find it online at KUNC.org. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman, Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.